Welcome to the party, pals. I'm Phil Gawthorne, action movie screenwriter. And I'm Liam Billingham, movie podcaster. And together we host Die Hard on a Blank, a podcast from Sugar23 that explores the influence of Die Hard on action cinema. In each episode, we'll talk about one major action movie that was released after Die Hard. Now, some of these movies take place on a bus. On a boat. Or even a roadhouse. Uh, sure. The point is, these are action movies that couldn't exist without Die Hard, and its DNA is everywhere. Die Hard on a Blank is a celebration of action movies and a deep dive into the ways that Die Hard shaped the action genre. So if you're a casual fan or an action movie Die Hard. Ooh, very nice. Then Die Hard on a Blank is for you. Yes, you personally. Our first two episodes, which are all about the original 1988 masterpiece Die Hard, drop December 21st, because Die Hard is a Christmas movie, wherever you get your podcasts. Phil, do the line. Now we have a podcast. (laughs) Ho, ho, ho. Hello, everybody. This is Liam Billingham, co-host of Oeuvre Busters. And this is the last time in this episode you're going to hear my voice because this episode features George Fragopoulos solo. That's right. George has decided to take on the episode on Charlie Wilson's War all by himself. Uh, it's a little bit of an experiment. I'm going to be totally frank with you. We recorded an episode on Synodokik, New York, which is the next one that we'd promised. And due to a few technical snafus, uh, there's, that episode is going to spend a little more time in the editing phase. So uh, I'm working diligently on that, and we thought it would be fun to release this episode, which was originally intended as a bonus as our regular episode for this week in September. That's a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff, so let's move past it. You will be getting an episode on Synodoki, New York from us in the near future. Until then, please, if you haven't already, rate, review, and subscribe to the show. We haven't had a particular lull in rates, reviews, and subscriptions of late, and we'd like to get back on that track. So please take the time to do it. It helps other people find the show. Also, we want to hear from you. We've gotten a couple emails, a couple voicemails, a couple messages from listeners uh, with their thoughts on things we've said, opinions we've held, some things that we've missed glaringly in talking about uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. So if you have a comment, opinion, thing you'd like to let us know, email us, uberbusters at gmail.com. You can send us a voicemail. Whatever works from, for you, dear listener, we want to hear from you. Okay, that's it. I'm going to turn it over to George. I hope you enjoy this episode. Bye-bye. All right, crew. George here. Flying solo without Liam for a very special episode of Uber Busters. I know what you're all thinking. Where's Liam? What is he up to? What is he doing? But every once in a while, it's nice to do things on your own. And that's what I'm doing here. And besides, this is for all those Uber Busters fans who have been stopping me in the streets saying, George, what's going on? When are you going to go solo? We love the dynamic that you have with Liam. But we want more George. Why don't I hear more of what you think? Maybe tell us a little bit more about your reading of Hegel, what you make of dialectical materialism. To those people, I say, fuck you. I'm not going solo. It's me and Liam all the way. Brothers in arms in this. So what am I here to discuss? Well, we're continuing our Philip Seymour Hoffman 
deep dive, and today I will be discussing 2007's Charlie Wilson's War, starring Tom Hanks, Julia Roberts, of course the aforementioned Philip Seymour Hoffman, and Amy Adams. So it's directed by Mike Nichols, with a screenplay by Aaron Sorkin, and of course, even if you did not know that Aaron Sorkin wrote the screenplay for this, it feels very much like an Aaron Sorkin production in terms of its ideology, in terms of its politics, and in terms of what it's subbing, saying, or attempting to say. So again, this is from the year 2007, which is very, very kind of important to kind of situate it within the doldrum years, obviously, of the Bush presidency, and to kind of think about that as far as, again, when the film is released in relationship to what's it's attempting to say, what it is attempting to say about kind of geo, geopolitical uh, politics at the time of its release. Uh, so the the film is based on a book by George Creel, I believe his name is. And actually, at some point, if I have some time, maybe I'll try to read a passage or two from the book that is kind of illustrative of the politics that the film doesn't really deal with head on, but which are actually at the heart of it. So what is this film about? Tom Hanks plays Charlie Wilson, a congressman who, with the help of Julia Roberts, who plays Joanne Herring, who's kind of like a super rich Texas socialite, and who's actually alive, still alive, the age of 90. And basically, they're kind of unholy alliance with a CIA agent who is played by Philip Seymour Hoffman by the name of Gust, or Gus, Avrokatos, who is a real malaka, to use a Greek term, because Hoffman here plays a Greek CIA agent. And basically, it's about the ways in which they engineer funneling money and weapons, most importantly, to the um, Muhadin, who are fighting the uh, Russian invasion of their country in Afghanistan during the 1980s. So I guess to, and obviously also about their triumph, because basically what the film posits is that without this kind of intervention, the uh, Russian invasion of, of Afghanistan would not have been repelled. So just quickly, uh, maybe to just talk about Philip Seymour Hoffman's performance here, and kind of his character. At an earlier episode, Liam suggested that one of the interesting kind of dynamics between or in a lot of these films is you have a kind of a big Phil versus little Phil dynamic or kind of like an alpha male versus like a beta male kind of Philip Seymour Hoffman. So the most obvious alpha male uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman performance would be kind of Mission Possible 3 and The Master, which we'll be doing soon. So those kind of roles, obviously, where he plays for lack of a better word, uh, or term, an alpha male, a controlling kind of figure, somebody who is clearly uh, either menacing or maniacal or is in some sort of way in control. And to kind of juxtapose those positions or those kind of roles with roles in which he plays a kind of less um, either confident uh, kind of figure or somebody who's clearly kind of just completely off the rails, when it comes to their lives. So the character, for example, and happiness is the first one that comes to mind. So this character here, Gus, is clearly, clearly in the big Phil category. So Gus is a, again, as I said, a CIA operative. He is responsible for doing all the kind of covert work that Tom Hanks's character um, kind of funnels the money to him. And he plays, again, this CIA spy master who behind the scenes helps Tom Hanks arrange basically the funneling of money and weapons to these Afghani rebels. 
as far as historically speaking, the historical character that Phil's character is, I could call him Phil on the first name basis, that Phil's character is based on is a really, really kind of detestable person. Um, So again, the real life Avrakotos worked for the CIA. He, and this is referenced very, very quickly in the film, was a integral part in helping the Greek colonels in 1967 overthrow the democratically attended, democratically elected government in Greece. And I don't want to do a deep dive in Greek, uh, contemporary Greek history here, but basically after World War II, there was a Greek civil war between right and leftist forces. And even though the war ended and the right won, there was still understandably so, um, decades and decades of conflict and antagonism in the country after that. And in 1967, the Greeks elect this guy named Papandreou into uh, power, and he is clearly a leftist. And obviously, um, the United States does not like this. And obviously, as we know, the United States has spent a lot of time and energy and power in doing everything it can globally to engineer coups and to overthrow any sort of kind of leftist threat to any sort of kind of global hegemony. So Greece was no difference to this. And they assisted and they helped these uh, Greek colonels in 1967, April 1967, uh, conduct a coup. And the character that Hoffman plays in the film is, again, based on the CIA agent who was integral and actually helped uh, do this and make this kind of happen. And this is actually where maybe I'll read just very, very quickly a page or so from this book, Charlie Wilson's War, only because, again, I think what's interesting about this film in a fucked up sort of way, and this is why it's it's so, so just, mm, it's delicious, centrist propaganda, is because it completely occludes us. That is, it does not make a reference to how fucking shitty that kind of interventionist politics uh, was and obviously continues to be. And this is from the book, again, Charlie Wilson's War. And I wonder, I'm not going to read this fucking book because I got better things to do. But I do wonder, and it does sound like maybe the book is a little bit more critical about these interventionist politics, which the film, again, does not criticize or critique in any sort of kind of meaningful way. But let me just read a couple of these paragraphs to let you know exactly the kind of person that Hoffman is supposed to be playing, but which, again, the film does not do a good enough job of showing, in fact, how insidious a lot of these people are who are championing or championing uh, intervention in Afghanistan. So this is from the book. Avrakotos understood that the colonels had expected the United States to thank them, however discreetly, for preventing the anti-American candidate Andreas Papandreou from taking power. The polls had indicated that Papandreou would win the election, and the colonels suspected that the CIA itself was trying to sabotage Papandreou's campaign. But world reaction was so bitter and the move so brutally anti-democratic that the Johnson administration took to verbally attacking the junta and threatening to cut off U.S. assistance. By the way, again, this is with where obviously publicly the United States is criticizing this military coup. But behind the scenes, they're totally, totally fucking for it. They fucking love it. Going back to the book. After the colonels arrested Papandreou, who had lived in the United States for years, the embassy sent Avrocotos to deliver a message to them. The United States has taken the unusual step of issuing the Greek leader an American passport, and the embassy wanted the junta to permit him to leave the country. That's the official position. You should let him go, the young CIA man told the colonels, that young CIA man. 
being Avrocotos. But unofficially, as your friend, my advice is to shoot the motherfucker because he's going to come back to haunt you, end quote. So that's basically the guy who Philip Seymour Hoffman is playing here. And again, those aspects of him as a character and as a person are not dealt with in any really uh, meaningful way in this film, which is, again, one of the really fucked up thing about this film's politics. And again, this kind of suggestion that, which I think Sorkin is clearly from the, the body of work that I know him uh, from, is clearly kind of a champion of in a kind of very centrist sort of way, liberal kind of centrist sort of way, in the sense that one of the glories about the Cold War, and this film fucking loves this. Another really awesome, by the way, film to juxtapose, this is with the Rainbow Three. This film, this, this is like a kind of the Rainbow Three prequel. But... That basically the glory of the Cold War, what was great about the Cold War is that there was a clear cut enemy and that was obviously communism and that was obviously the Russians. So the film continuously comes back to this kind of theme that even though shit is bad around the world, nobody could get along. We all know that there's a communist threat and it needs to be fought and it needs to be done away with. And the film continuously comes back to this over and over and over again. At some point, even in a not so subtle way, suggesting that there should be a kind of almost like religious war against the Russians. There are scenes later on where there is a, an Israeli arms dealer who meets with these, I believe Egyptian colonels or generals. And the, they're discussing basically how to funnel all of these weapons to the Afghani rebels. Uh, And the film makes it clear that the reason this is kind of important is because the Israelis are the ones that have the most, weaponry that's been bought from the Soviet Union so they can funnel it to the rebels and basically it will seem like it's Soviet weaponry even though obviously it goes through um, other hands so basically they're kind of uh, laundering weapons and there's this kind of very interesting moment where Charlie Wilson and Avrakotos are trying to kind of get these people together obviously like the Egyptians and the Israelis and the Saudis and the Pakistanis who for a variety of reasons, some of them obviously religious, um, do not get along. And the film seems to posit that, well, at the very least, one thing that can happen is that the three great religions of the West, uh, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, Christianity here represented by not only just Charlie Wilson, but more so by uh, Joanne Herring, who in the film, again, as played by Julie Roberts, does talk a little bit about, or a lot about actually, about God and about her religion. And also, I should, I'm going to read, by the way, her, she wrote a book, uh, Joanne Herring did, Joanne King Herring did, called Diplomacy in Diamonds, My Wars from the Ballroom to the Battlefield. And it sounds nutso, but I want to read the Amazon description in a second. But anyway, the film says, or implies that, well, one thing that all of these religions have in common is that they're obviously not godless and that they can kind of team up and fight the godless uh, Russians and communists. And the film, again, doesn't do like it's it's really it's, it's not even subtext. It's just there. It's discussed. The Julie Roberts character discusses this at some point very clearly with Charlie. And she says something along the lines of like, well, we have God or um, God is on our side. And this kind of theme comes up a couple of times. And again, there's there are moments, I should be fair to the film, there are moments where it suggests that all of this kind of like um, 
again, weaponry that's going to the Afghanis will in some sort of way come back to haunt the Americans, that there will be blowback, to use a CIA term, there will be blowback against the United States, which obviously here is not directly referred to as 9-11, but that, that is a potentiality, that is something that might eventually happen down the road. But again, the film doesn't in any sort of way really, really criticize U.S. intervention in in any sort of meaningful way. The only thing it basically does is suggest that there are good ways to intervene in other countries and that there are bad ways to intervene in other countries. And I'll get to that in a second or I'll get to that in a couple of minutes. So maybe we should talk about briefly also Tom Hanks' character here. So he plays Charlie Wilson, who's kind of this womanizing congressman from Texas. And there are kind of, I guess, echoes of like a sort of like Clinton-esque figure here that so he's this like womanizing, like binge drinking, like dude who when the film begins, we see him in a hot tub with a whole bunch of strippers. And it's suggested that he's also like uh, on a coke binge and that's he's really good at like just getting shit done. But the film kind of also presents his character in almost a kind of like a uh, redemptive arc. So actually the film begins in the entire, the entire, almost the entirety of the film is actually told in flashback. The film begins in 1988 with Charlie Wilson receiving this kind of award for like, in the service he's done to like end the cold war. I should, should actually, I should say probably the early nineties because if we're actually talking about like the fall of the Soviet union, we're talking about the early nineties and he's being celebrated for again, helping to, and the Cold War. And then we flash back to him in this kind of hot tub. It's 1980 or 1981. And he's watching the TV. And he sees the Soviet uh, army invading Afghanistan. And the film kind of, kind of presents his story as almost of a, in a kind of redemptive, redemptive arc. He begins, again, as this kind of lecherous, um, conniving, kind of ineffectual congressman who eventually finds his cause, and that cause is to help end the Cold War, or at the very least to help fight this one front of the Cold War. And, I, you know, Hanks does a great job. I mean, he's Tom fucking Hanks. He kind of, like, kills it. But again, there's very little, I think, in this character that is presented or held up in a truly negative light. His kind of womanizing is almost played for laughs. There are all, like, these psych gags of him working in his offices and being surrounded by all of these beautiful women, all of his secretaries and all of his aides are really young women. And the film makes it obviously very clear that he's a womanizer, but there's no sense in which this is kind of critiqued. And the reason it kind of almost reminded me of Clinton is again, the ways in which even centrists nowadays and liberals nowadays are very eager to forgive, obviously Bill Clinton's kind of luxury. And it seems to me that this character is meant to suggest a kind of nostalgia for the Clinton era. So, again, this film was released in 2007. I believe the book was first published in 2003. And, again, the fucking doldrums of the Bush administration, that fucking shit show. And it seems to suggest its political and kind of ideological position seems to be that there are ways to kind of intervene in other countries' politics. There are good ways to do it and there are bad ways to do it. And the film is obviously a criticism of 
our shit show and boondoggle in Iraq, but it's not in any sort of way seems to be suggesting that all forms of United States imperialism are bad. It seems to be suggesting, again, that there are good ways to do it and bad ways to do it. And that what's happening in Iraq at that time, again, the mid to late um, aughts, is the fucking worst way to do it. But there are good ways to do it. So basically, the film kind of, in a really kind of interesting way, I should say that the film does do a good job of showing the politics and the kind of action of statecraft and of spycraft. It's definitely an entertaining film. It's like a solid 145. It's not too long. It's very well crafted. It's very well directed. The performances are pretty much amazing. And it does do a great job, again, of showing all of those kind of like politics and how those are kind of operate behind the scenes. So basically, again, the film takes us throughout the entirety of the 80s and shows how there's an increasing, because of Wilson's involvement, an increasing involvement in support for what the um, Afghani freedom fighters. So it begins with with Wilson basically um, allocating $5 million or that he knows that there's $5 million being allocated to help the Afghani rebels. And then eventually by the time the film ends or towards uh, the end of the war itself or the, uh, the United States involvement in the war, it's something like a billion dollars that they've given um, the, the government through this kind of like covert way of funneling money and of weaponry is given close to a billion dollars or 500 million, which is, I think is matched. The film says is matched by the Saudis for another 500 million in support of those freedom fighters. So, and the film again ends with um, the, again, the uh, Soviets uh, being repelled, fleeing the country, and with there's a scene again with about 10 minutes left in the film where Wilson is in this room and he's talking to other congressmen and he basically kind of complains that or he says that what we need is a million dollars. He says just a million dollars to help build schools in Afghanistan. And there are a whole bunch of other congressmen who are totally, totally fucking against them. They're like, oh, the war's over. Like we won. We won the Cold War. We don't need to fucking help these people. And they don't give the money. So obviously the suggestion being that we didn't do enough after the fact to help uh, rebuild the country, which I'm sure is fucking true, obviously. But again, it seems to suggest that, well, what we really just needed to have done is to have intervened in a better, more thoughtful sort of way. So in the film actually ends with some words on the screen. That says something which are from Wilson himself that says something along the lines of like, we witness great events in history, we change the world, but we failed at the end game. And that's how the film ends with those words on the screen. So to juxtapose also kind of Hanks's election or uh, politicking, uh, you have Julie Roberts' character, again, Joanne Herring who is, again, the kind of like Texas, I mean, I don't know, I don't even know exactly, she's a, a Texas socialite, and she just basically comes across as like a super, super rich person who has a lot of fucking money to burn and a lot of will to basically promote capitalism around the world. So her book, again, which is called Diplomacy in Diamonds, My Wars from the Ballroom to the Battlefield, published on uh, published in 2011. So here's the, here's me doing research. Here's the, the description on Amazon. She's been dirt poor. She's been filthy rich. 
Rich was more fun. She married three times, divorced twice, found her true love, and lost him to cancer. At 21, she was told she would die soon. She lived. Doctors said she'd never be able to have children. She had them. She bargained with God, dictators, and Democrats. She partied with princes, presidents, premiers, Barbara Walters, Anwar Sadat, Margaret Thatcher, Tom Hanks, and Francisco Franco, though not all at the same time. She captivated powerful men with her feminine charm and then persuaded them toward unlikely political alliances through her formidable intelligence. She waltzed with Prince Philip in Buckingham Palace, dressed in men's clothes and smuggled herself in a barrel across the Pakistani border, threw a Roman-themed party so extravagant it was featured in Life magazine, and survived the Soviet gunship attack in the mountains of Afghanistan. Um, And that's pretty much the description, but basically... This character is kind of terrible <laughs> in the way, again, that the film uncritically shows basically rich Americans, rich capitalists, and their ability to interfere in global politics without any sort of fucking consequences. This person was not elected in any sort of position. Most people would have no fucking clue who she is. And because of her obscene amount of wealth, she's able to throw around that money and basically legit, just completely and utterly change world history. Just through, obviously, her will to power, her money's will to power, I should say. Um, Roberts is great, is fine in this. I don't want to say great. Because there's animosity between the Fergopolis family and Julie Roberts, which maybe I'll end this episode with a little gossip about Julie Roberts. I wrote a note here, by the way, that this film is like Triumph of the Will for Centrists. And I stand by that because, again, this is really, really great propaganda for centrists. Uh, like I said earlier, and just to kind of drive the thesis home, it suggests that there was this kind of glorious moment in United States global politics where we clearly knew who the enemy was. The enemy was the Russians. And the great thing about having the Russians around was that we could all in some sort of way get together and understand that there was a threat. There was a communal threat that we could fight against. And that threat is no longer there. A lot of people have written about this and talked about this, how after obviously kind of the fall of the Soviet Union, the 90s was a period in which American imperialism was looking for that enemy, was looking for that new war, was looking for that new frontier. Because if there's one thing that imperialism needs and there's one thing that capitalism needs, it always needs a new enemy and it always needs new places to flock to. And obviously what happened after September 11th is that the uh, American government was given that enemy. And it started off an entire uh, new war and new front that in some sort of way, obviously, kind of was always there. But after September 11th, there was a new, um, I guess, kind of a new will or a new willingness to fight that war or to at least kind of engage in this false war. So that's about it. But I did promise you guys some good Julia Roberts gossip. And here it is. So my father, God rest his soul only dry cleaners on the Upper East Side. And one day, and I think this was like in the early 90s, I want to say, one day, lo and behold, who walks in to his dry cleaners but, yes, the one and only Julia Roberts. And Julia Roberts drops off a dress, and she's like, hey, I need this tomorrow, and I need it by um, 7 o'clock because I have like some sort of fucking like event to go to. And I think this is like post, obviously, Pretty Woman Julia Roberts. So she's, uh, you know, a huge thing. And my dad recognized her right away. And he's like, I'll fucking, of course, give you your dress and I'll make sure it's done because you're Julia fucking Roberts. Not a problem. 
So he gets it done. He expedites it because, again, Julia Roberts, right, walks into your dry cleaners and she asks for something. You're going to get it done. And he was a fan. And it's the next day and it's 7 o'clock. And my poor, poor father, who used to work 12-hour days, just simply wants to close his store and get home. And he actually, from what I remember him telling me about the story, that he waits for like another 10 or 15 minutes. So until like 7.15 or 7.20 to go home. And he's like, hey, she's not here. I'm not going to fucking sit around, wait around till 8 o'clock. I've already been here for 12 hours for Julia Roberts, even if it is Julia fucking Roberts, to come and pick up her dress. I'm fucking going home. So my father goes home to his loving family. And the next day, um, Julia Roberts' assistant shows up. And she basically says, Julia uh, Roberts wants to talk to you. And she hands, um, or the assistant, I should say. I don't remember if the assistant was a man or a woman. Um, I wasn't there. She, the assistant hands the cell phone to my dad. And who's on the other end? But Julia Roberts. And she is pissed. Why? Because apparently maybe either her assistant or she herself. And no fucking way it was her. It was probably her assistant. Was sent over to get this dress. And obviously my dad had closed. So she couldn't get her dress. She couldn't go to wherever the fuck she was going to or whatever the fuck she needed the dress for. And they basically got into a shouting match over the phone. The assistant at some point just grabs the dress and leaves. I believe also obviously with the cell phone. Um, And yeah. And Julie Robertson fucking paid for that dress. My dad dry cleaned it. Maybe even, I don't know, hemmed it or did some sort of work on it. And, um, yeah, I guess what I'm trying to say is that Julie Roberts owes me 20 bucks. So if you see her somewhere, let her know that there is a Greek dude in uh, Brooklyn right now who, uh, yeah, who's looking for his 20 bucks. And basically my life since then has been completely and utterly derailed because, again, Julie Roberts failed to pay for her dry cleaned and potentially hemmed or fixed dress. True story. All right, crew, thank you for listening, and peace.